Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I'm Nathan Sager. Today, we welcome Justin Davis, a Memorial Cup, University Cup, and Allen Cup champion who has authored Conflicted Scars, an average player's journey to the NHL. It was released by ECW Press in October of 2022. And a quick note, this is our second episode of our seventh season. Our leadoff guest, of course, was former Toronto Blue Jays manager John Gibbons, and he and Greg Oliver's book, Gibby, Tales of a Baseball Lifer, is now number one in baseball biographies on Amazon Canada. Now, I was furrowing my brow a bit when I saw it was frequently bought together with Prince Harry's book, and then it dawned on me. Both Gibby and Harry have had their difficulties with the Royals. Oh, boy. <laughs> yes, well played, Nate. Um, just to let uh, our listeners know, you can listen to that episode on our website at sportslit.ca, that and any episode we've ever done. And also, you can buy the book there, too. There's a link. So check it out. Um, and uh, congratulations to John Gibbons. He was a very fun guest, uh, as we both can agree. Um, okay, Nate. Well, let's play ball. Uh, or in this case, it's time for Puck Drop. Players in the Ontario Hockey League will say their four seasons go by in a flash. The effects of it, though, can last a lifetime. That brings us to our guest today, Justin Davis. While he was on a short-term disability leave from his high school teaching position in 2019, he set out to put down in words uh, his hockey experience as something for his children regarding, you know, why their dad is the way he is. That evolved into conflicted scars, which voices some truths about the structure of developmental hockey in Canada and how it tends to desensitize teenage boys who, of course, will one day have to work, you know, probably work an office job in the real world as, in hockey lingo, civilians. <laughs> One could probably tie that thread loosely with something Corey Hirsch said to us on an episode last fall, Neil. The former NHL goalie had that line about, you know, toxic masculinity you know, it all, quote, it almost killed me and I'd rather be alive, unquote. Hirsch was not actually criticizing, you know, the institution of hockey. Rather, he sort of said playing the game, you know, and professionally saved him in his fight with the hero obsessive compulsive disorder. And you can sort of put conflicted scars into sort of that same broad spectrum of working through, you know, uh, you know, some, some deep feelings. It's, Far from a burn it all down broadside against the sport, Davis, after all, you know, had the dizzying highs of being a professional, you know, being a high level, high performance player, you know, he lifting, you know, national championship trophies over his head and he's still close to the game as a, you know, as a coach and as a team chaplain with an OHL team, the Guelph Storm. Conflicted scars happened to go to market last fall, though, right at a point well, Hockey Canada and its partner, the Canadian Hockey League, which includes the OHL and the Quebec and Western League counterparts, were all sort of facing a reckoning, and maybe they still are, about a system where abuses of athletes do, does happen. 
Davis criticizes how that system works, like elements of it, you know, while stressing what he got out of playing hockey, you know, the lifelong friendships, the championships, you know, getting drafted by an NHL team. He seems totally attuned to knowing one could pass through about 1,800 lifetimes and, and not experience any of that. Uh, reading Conflicted Scars, you know, definitely has informed now how I take in almost anything about what is expected of young athletes in this country and, and what they can be exposed to. You know, whether that's in, you know, beginner pro hockey, which is, you know, my term for, for the OHL, or for, you know, athletes at international and Olympic sports. I see, you know, national soccer team alumna Sierra McCormack on Parliament Hill, you know, calling for a public inquiry into abuse in sports and speaking about long-held fears of reprisals for speaking out. That definitely relates to conflicted scars. And the same goes when I, you know, just happen to be scanning on Twitter and seeing, you know, a post about an injury that a 17-year-old OHL player competed with in a playoff defeat. And, you know, I kind of wonder, well, is that, is, should he have been playing in that scenario? Those are, you know, big moral questions. But Justin Davis isn't, you know, sort of preaching to anyone about how what they should think. He and other hockey men of his vintage are sort of, you know, you know talking up to the audience, you know, sharing that they experienced things that were societally unacceptable and, and we should definitely have that out in the open, Neil. Well, surmised, Nate, uh, Justin has the inside knowledge to tell it like he sees it and not necessarily to tell it like it should fit into a convenient narrative, see uh, Tear It All Down, as you mentioned. Um, so as as for his hockey background, um, just a little more detailed on that, he was selected by the Washington Capitals in the 1996 draft. He won the Memorial Cup with the Ottawa 67s in 1999, and he played for the Western Mustangs, where he won the University Cup in 2002. Yeah, see that, John Bacon? We do have some university sports in Canada. In our <laughs> you've, way. you've been holding that one in for a while, haven't you? Yeah, it feels good to no longer have uh, Bacon uh, clogging my chest region there, Neil. <laughs> You know what? Just just on that note, John Bacon, of course, we welcomed him last season. Uh, so go check it out on our website. Uh, he had a, a really interesting book about Team Canada, 1972, um, uh, sportslit.ca. So over 20 years later, Davis is still the Mustangs all-time points leader. He also played pro hockey in Germany and senior hockey, where he won the Allen Cup with the Dundas Real McCoys, who Nate, I believe, made news recently again. Yes, they won it last weekend, uh, right at home in Hamilton at the JL Greitmeyer Arena. <laughs> in addition to being a chaplain for the Guelph Storm, uh, Nate, as you mentioned, he's a teacher and uh, he lives in Guelph. Uh, and it would be easy to latch on to the powerful words written early on in the book that Davis, quote, hated hockey and he still might, unquote. But the book is more than that, hence the title. The Scars... They're conflicting because they're physical and mental, uh, and uh, they conflict in a number of different ways. Uh, you know, now we go back to the physical injury, head trauma, and, um, and then the mental, the mental scars, the participating in behavior that is admo was admonishable and still is, um, um, and not even participating in it, but just maybe knowing it's wrong and not really, you know, saying anything um, or speaking up. Now, however, as we follow his career through the pages. He does find his passion again uh, for the game, and that's after junior. But it's key to note it's not a blind passion. Um, near the conclusion is the inclusion of a quote from former NHL player and current media analyst Jamie McLennan. Hockey is 95% amazing, but the 5%, there are serious issues there, and they have to be dealt with. 
as you say, Nate, it's not a teardown. And importantly, when it comes to the conversation of hockey culture, especially in this country, I think he's objective. And he's had experiences across three junior teams. That's really, really good in, in, in providing a kind of a balanced view and comparative view. And, and that's also junior hockey is a level of uh, uh, hockey where the majority of the toxicity occurred for him. And you could probably argue where, where most of it exists in general or existed in general. Um, so while ridiculous hazing rights are called out and outdated approaches to treating injury and motivating players are, are also included, that doesn't mean he didn't appreciate the camaraderie, uh, things like the camaraderie, hijinks, <laughs> and all of team building, nor does he want to abolish fighting, which, he's, which he argues is okay within the con- uh, confines of the game as long as it's not staged. And he doesn't handle anything with kid, kid gloves per se. I'll just read this quote as an illustration. Uh, I learned how to deal with yelling coaches, how to battle through adversity, and most of all, how to be resilient. After the game, these coaches would ask about my family and could separate the game from my personal life. I've always tried to do this in my own coaching as a result. More than anything, Nate, it appears his goal is to take a step outside of the bubble, a bubble which in many ways has already burst around the game of hockey, and he wants to acclimatize and modernize the game so it's in line with what's acceptable today. Yeah, and in the spirit of that, Neil, I, I think I flag conflicted scars as a possible, you know, ep- topic for us. Uh, as soon as I think I saw it on ECW's, you know, Fall Twenty Two catalog, I thought, okay, this is kind of in our wheelhouse. So OHL, Canadian University Sports, plus Kingston, Ottawa, and Hamilton connections. Yes, Nate, I believe you are uh, currently broadcasting live from Hamilton. Um, more or less live, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, indeed, Nate, and and I and I gotta mention when you mentioned it, um, you know, I kind of was put it put the brakes on a little bit. I wanted to take my time with it first of all because of the subject matter, which actually um, ended up not being as graphic as I thought it would be, um, or as widespread, I guess. Um, and quite frankly, I wasn't really sure how objective the narrative would be, but uh, in the end, I, I think I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, and there's no statute of limitations, you know, on a good read and hopefully a follow-up discussion where we, you know, do justice to the book. In terms of those connections, Davis was actually a 17-year-old rookie on a Kingston Frontenacs team in the OHL when Neil and I were would have been teenagers wa- watching from the standing room at the old Kingston Memorial Center. Purple confetti. Uh, yeah, and now, yeah, that was the torn up 50-50 tickets. <laughs> the closest the Frontenacs ever get to a ticker tape parade. And and I when I say the old Kingston Memorial Center, I don't mean it's like old as in they tore it down. I mean old in that it was old when we were children, and it's still there. Uh, and university hockey, where the Queen's Gales hockey teams still play at the Memorial Center, is near and dear. I voted in the U Sports uh, Media Men's Hockey Top 10 poll. For more than a decade, I also, you know, not to make this about us, but I did cover the OHL for eight years from, you know, 2010 till 18. Well, a lot of the moral and ethical issues around beginner pro hockey, I'd sort of askew the term major junior, uh, were coming to the form. You know, those including, as Neil alluded to, protecting players from brain injuries, you know, concussions and addressing mental health issues. And don't those two things intersect? Uh, in Justin Davis's playing days, he had 12 concussions spanning from, you know, his early days in junior as a young teenager through senior hockey as a, in his 30s. And by far the most shocking passage in the book for me was the lack of adequate first response treatment from two of his OHL teams when he suffered significant brain injuries. 
including one that required a stay in intensive care. In more recent times, the OHL has probably been one of the more progressive leagues in North America in, in terms of trying to reduce the frequency and severity of blows to the head. It levies longer suspensions than the NHL does for illegal checks that have head where the head is the principal point of contact. It limits how many fighting majors a player can have during the regular season before being automatically suspended. So it's holding some space for fights that are an honest outgrowth of emotion, not the staged kind of, well, our team's, you know, getting, you know, whacked, you know, five goose here. So we better, let's start a fight or something to send a message. Uh, getting back to the conflicted scars, it really does challenge you as a fan to sort of look critically at the Canadian Hockey League, which is, uh, there's a lot to love about that level of hockey, especially the fact that even, you know, in, in the bigger Ontario markets, you can still get a good seat for under $40. And there aren't many uh, places in Canada where you can say that about, you know, live sports anymore. But the cost of players chasing those dreams, stick tap, right, Thompson, you know, it involves, you know, boys leaving home, you know, even before their intake into the CHL at age 16. And once in the league, they're, you know, playing pro-length schedules, they get traded. The leagues have also lobbied every jurisdiction where there are Canadian Hockey League teams for exemptions from having to pay minimum wage. And they sort of say they're, you know, the players are student athletes because they do, you know, get education packages after leaving the league. But at the same time, it's kind of like, well, you know, there's there's no, the London Knights are not a university. <laughs> Although the players do get a pretty good degree in, in uh, hunter hockey, right? And as Davis writes in Conflicted Scars in 2020, the CHL commissioned the Turnpenny Report that found, quote, players became desensitized over time to toxic actions and misconduct, unquote. You know, from his point of view, from the point of view of, you know, other you know, players of his vintage here, one thinks of like, you know, Daniel Carcillo, uh, you know, not enough had changed in, in two decades since they were playing in the league as young adults. You know, there are no idealist, you know, blue sky thinking responses to all that. But I mean, you know, these are, you know, established institutions. And uh, we always kind of look, I think, for people who will, you know, center the realism and the pragmatism of all. And I think Justin Davis has really, you know, produced a first star effort with uh, Conflicted Scars, Neil. Thanks, Nate. Yeah, coming up, we're going to talk to him. Justin Davis is set to converse about Conflicted Scars. Welcome back to the program, Justin Davis. Welcome to Sports Lit. Thank you for joining us. I guess right off, uh, what was the initial goal when you began to write what would become the book Conflicted Scars? Well, the initial goal was just to put some thoughts on paper and kind of let my kids know who I was as a hockey player because uh, um, unlike a lot of other people, I kept my jerseys hidden in the closet and rings uh, hidden away. So I started off as a maybe a five, six page um, just a couple notes to my kids that I could give them in 10, 11 years and just let them know who their dad was. Mm. Yeah, and I, th I think when we talked before in the fall, you, you mentioned uh, it was a, a book about a player of your generation who's, you know, what, who unfortunately died young. That kind of was something that sort of got the, you know, urge for you to tell your story going. Yeah, I, I was on short-term disability and uh, somebody gave me the book by Ken Dryden, a game changer. And uh, it was Steve Monador. And I had played against Steve and he's from Peterborough. And I was roommates with one of his friends at uh, in Washington during the summer at NHL camp. And 
I was in that kind of circle, and Peterborough guys are, are a tight little circle. So as I read his story, um, I realized that a lot of the things that were going on with him and his post-concussion stuff were the same or was not to the extent that he was, but were a lot of things that uh, I was going through. So that was number one. And then uh, tragically, about four or five months ago, Lance Galbraith passed away, who was a teammate in Ottawa and uh, and definitely was a rough and uh, very physical player. And then Andre Payette passed away, another former teammate in Kingston. And Matt Leahy, my roommate in Washington, had passed away. So you start just going through all these people and um, and you just start to wonder why. Yeah, and to me, uh, the most jaw-dropping parts in the book were how uh, two of your OHL teams, you mentioned Kingston, I think the other was, and the other was Sault Ste. Marie, sort of, you know, mistreated you af- after your brain injuries. How hopeful are you that, you know, fans who have read that take that in and better understand now why the game has sort of evolved the way it has maybe in the last 10 to 15 years? I think it starts with the trainers and the medical care. And back then, no fault of their own, but the guys they hired were uh, our trainer in Kingston was a hotel manager and they were sock and jersey hander. (laughs) Their job was to hand out those, the jersey and socks. And their job was to mix Gatorade and make sure the sticks went out and sharpen skates. And there's no medical training in their background. So uh, when you've got a major uh, brain injury and you're being treated by the same guy, who's trying to sharpen your skates. It's obviously not the, the right practice, but now uh, the care has improved. Uh, I was watching the hockey game the other night and somebody had their bell rung and uh, it was seriously, you, you knew they were concussed and it was amazing how they still didn't remove them from the ice or send them to the dark room. And the announcers were joking that uh, he looks okay. It looks like he's got his wits about him now and he can come back. So uh, we've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah. And just, and just briefly, uh, for, for our audience, people who are, have yet to read the book, how many concussions did you have, have uh, you know, documented during the time you played hockey from junior all the way through senior? Yeah, it's it's tough looking back. I say, it's funny when people say, you say 10 to 15, that's a, it's a large number. I mean, I had a major hospital stay and I was knocked out another time. And I, uh, there's a lot of mini concussions after that as a result of those. I mean, brain, the brain can heal. But when you have a brain injury and then you return to play right away like we did, it's those it's those next bumps and bruises that lead to other ones. So I would say safely between 10 and 12 concussions. But uh, I don't think of myself as being special. I think that was that was most of us in that generation. Yeah. Sorry, you know, go, sorry, go yeah. ahead, Nate. Oh, Neil. Okay. Yeah. Just, well, I'll, just, I'll jump in here. Actually. Yeah, so, Neil, go ahead, Neil. So, so uh, the, the play you mentioned uh, in watching that NHL game, I wonder if it was the same one I was watching with where Matt Roy tried to hit Evander Kane and went face first into the, into the yeah. boards. Yeah. That looked pretty, uh, pretty dangerous. And I remember them saying, Oh, maybe the con- concussion spotter will uh, take him out. But he ended up, uh, he ended up staying uh, with a nasty, uh, I guess a bruise on his face because it looked like the helmet kind of caved into his face. Um, uh, what I what I wanted to ask you is something that you just mentioned off the top. It wasn't my initial question, but you said you had your jerseys and rings tucked away and kept away. Why why was that? I think you're taught at a young age, and I, I talk about this early in the book where I think when you're a better player when you're younger, there's a lot of jealousy and a lot of people that say things about you. So when I got MVPs, when I was younger, I would put the medals in my bag and walk out with my head down and you're, you're kind of embarrassed to be good. And then as you get older, I mean, hockey players, you listen to interviews from the best players in the world and they say nothing. So 
you're told just to kind of be humble and it's about the name on the back on the front of your jersey and not the name on the back of your jersey so with that i think i'm embarrassed to tell people my hockey career and and have my jerseys hung up and have people come and see my rings because i think it's just this this barrier that we can't break so i kept everything hidden and it wasn't until i started writing the book i realized that uh, how many of these I think feelings and thoughts and and thoughts of embarrassment that I had. For for those that uh, will read the book or haven't read the book yet, um, perhaps you can uh, describe how good you were as a you know in, in minor hockey as a maybe a six or seven year old. Yeah, back then, back then we didn't have we had the MTHL, which was the GHL back then, but all the best players still played for small towns. I mean, our parents would have thought we were insane to drive an hour and a half to practice and pay $15,000 for a year of hockey. So uh, I was really good, but there was also a lot of other really good players, but we were playing a hockey because my, my town of Carlisle, Ontario is very small. So I would score 200, 300 goals a year. And most games I would have four or five goals and that, that became normal. And, um, I think it's a little different now when kids are getting into AAA at five and six years old. But uh, at that time, I was uh, is definitely uh, one of the better players in our area. It's interesting too, because because the uh, the average person. I mean, I'm sure all hockey fans know this, and maybe sports fans in general. But someone listening to the program that maybe doesn't know this uh, or doesn't follow hockey as intently would know that Wayne Gretzky had to leave Brantford because of basically what you're saying, just scoring in you know an astronomical amount of goals and setting up plays and, and, you know, just winning games on his own that they had to send him to Toronto, I believe. Well, it gets to the point too, where um, you're on a breakaway in a game, you're winning six, two, and you've scored four goals and you just kind of curl off and you have a little half delay on the half boards and try and find a teammate. And, but then they say you're, you're making a mockery of the game then. Right. And people don't realize you're six, seven or eight years old at the time. And, uh, all you want to do is play hockey. So yeah, it's it's definitely it was something difficult to cope with. And a lot of the friends I played AAA hockey with later on went through the same thing. I'm going to ask you a question that relates to that kind of being humble and and, and kind of the balance of where that's a good thing and where that might and we're talking about how it, may, it might be a bad thing here. But I'll I'll ask you about that in a moment. I, I want to ask I want to ask um, the climate in which you released the book. Uh, well, you know, it was, it was very charged around hockey. This book came out in October. Uh, so Hockey Canada was under under the gun. And, um, you know, the sport itself has been under the gun for quite some time now. Um, how do you find the, me- the media reacted to this story? Do they understand your intended goal? Because the book doesn't tear down hockey. I mean, it seems like a question that you're trying to answer. And you do mention a lot of positives as well. That was a struggle, I think, at the start. I mean, initially, my book was supposed to come out uh, over a year ago, and uh, I was a little disappointed because you're on pins and needles to what the reaction is going to be and how the hockey world, uh, how the hockey world reacts to it. And uh, and the delay actually led it to coming out, like you said, in October when all the Hockey Canada stuff was going on. So initially, I was doing interviews with CBC and Sportsnet and TSN, and they wanted to know about Hockey Canada. So even though I'd written a book about my career and, and conflicted scars meant I just had these hard feelings and things that happened to me, but I also loved part of the game. And it was just this battle of internal demons that I had with hockey. So uh, initially I was dealing with a lot of things with hockey. Like I was the the guru of hockey culture and what was going on. And uh, as a, as time has progressed, I think I've settled into interviews like this where I'm 
people have read the book and we're actually talking about the issues and and talking about both the good and bad. So it, it's definitely been an evolution since October. And uh, as things die down, um, I think the questioning's changed. But what I've learned is hockey, hockey is topical and uh, something new is going to pop up in the next month, unfortunately. And, uh, and we'll see what happens from there. Well, something that did kind of come up in the last few days or weeks is, um, you know, there's a, there, there are athletes right now talking to parliament about their experience with the, you know, abuse in sports. And I, I wanted to know what are the, you know, because ho- again, we talked about hockey being under the gun. It, it would appear that this is happening across the board. So what are the similarities and differences between, you know, what's happening in Canada's national winter sport, which is hockey at a junior level and what's happening with sports in general in this country, as we're seeing uh, with this kind of, I guess we can call it testimony to Parliament. Yeah, it's difficult. As an elite athlete, I think you end up with elite coaching or what people say is a an elite level of coaching. And those coaches are used to doing things a certain way. And if you don't want to do what they want you to do, then mm. you don't get those breaks. So if I'm a uh, a national level figure skater and they have one coach and I'm upset with how she's treating, how she's treating me. And uh, I say, I don't want to be coached by her. Then my dream dies. So I think that is um, along all sports. I think that that's a big thing. I think in hockey, uh, the power structure, right? Like the coach and GM, uh, when that, that role is tied together, uh, it's difficult. What are you going to do? Report abuse to the coach who's hired, who's the same as the general manager. And, Mm. There's even organizations in the CHL where, I mean, the coach, the GM, the assistant coach, they're all related, right? So mm. what are you gonna, who are you going to report to? And uh, that goes along with the gymnastics stuff and the soccer we're talking about. The, the elite level coaches are hired by these organizations and they're in tight. So what I talk about in the book and I've been talking about in interviews is we just need that kind of intermediate person or that kind of... Uh, arbitrator where you can report something to an on uh, just kind of on your own and right. uh, and it's an independent source and that's where sports I think is trying to get to and hopefully that comes out of this and similar to that Justin I was also like this just this week you know I saw a Twitter post you know an OHL player I, you know checked he's just you know just turned 17 years old and the post was about what injury he played through in the playoffs and I shuddered a bit now, you played in the University Cup with a first-degree shoulder separation, but you were yeah. a bit older, 24. I guess I'm trying to reconcile that. Like, is it is it is it just, is it right that, you know, that we're still sort of, that a, a child, you know, someone who is still a child, even if there is, you know, medical approval, is, is still making that decision? I, I just get, like I say, I just was a little, <laughs> felt like a bit of a helicopter parent when I read that, and I don't even have kids. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, and I talk about that. It's a fine line, right? Like, I was 24 and mature, and I knew it was kind of like my last kick of the can. I'd spent five years, and I didn't want to sit out. So I knew that, I knew the repercussions. I'd met with doctors at the Fowler-Kennedy Clinic, which is, uh, like, world-renowned clinic, and I made that decision. But when you're 16 and 17 years old, I think sometimes – with my concussions too, is we need an adult to protect ourselves from ourselves. Like these kids will play if you let them play, but at some point a medical professional has to come in and say, listen, you're, you're 17. You've got maybe a pro career out of you. You've got a lot of time ahead of you. We may not need you at this time. So it's, it's just a matter of the adults helping out their, their teenagers, right? You forget that. Hmm. And I too, uh, I've also wondered with the book, 
I mean, I know you have gotten a lot of positive feedback from people you played with and against. What do you think makes your, you know, your experience, you know, run through the OHL in the 90s, then success in university hockey with <clears throat> at Western and then playing some European pro? What made that relatable to fellow players and to, you know, readers in general? Yeah, I think there's just so many of us that have gone through it. And I tell a lot of people and I said, I'm an average hockey player. I actually feel like deep down I wasn't that good because – I was so close to the NHL and I saw these guys that were like extremely special, but then you start to realize we talk about these guys that just barely didn't make the NHL or played in the NHL, but there's so many guys like me that played major junior hockey and their careers ended and they just went elsewhere and they didn't really know how to transition to normal life. So I think so many guys, it was great having people reach out and get some feedback saying like, I went through the exact same thing. And so many of us have gone through it. And I don't think till we realized till we had families and kids the same age. I have a 17 year old son and I look at him. And that was the first time that I realized that's how young I really was at this time. <laughs> I think it's just so relatable. And I always joke, like I see him do things and I'm like, is, is his brain <laughs> totally functional or what's going on here? And then you think I had moved out two years previous and was put naked into a bus bathroom. So um, it's relatable for people in a long-winded answer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess you sort of preempted the next question. You, of course, you and your wife, Jesse, have three kids, Joshua, Grace, and Avery. And I guess you really was seeing, you know, your, your son come of age that really sort of made you reflect. Yeah, definitely. And going through hockey at that time. And then you're watching these crazy parents just sinking money into it and, doing everything they can for their kid to make it to the next level. And when I was writing the book, I was just thinking like, you have no idea even what happens at the next level. You're, you're sending your kid away to live with someone you don't know, to be coached by someone you don't know. And internally I'm, I'm thinking of all these awful things that happened to me at different levels. And I'm like, why are you paying $20,000 a year for all this training to have your kid go through this and just not experience the time that you do with them in the car and, the time that you do just enjoying watching them play sports. So that, that definitely was, uh, it was topical when I was going through all of this. Did you, do you feel your, I mean, when you talk to people, your generation, uh, that played with you, teammates, uh, opposition, do you feel that your, your thoughts on the game are similar to theirs or do they feel, are there, are there players that feel like, Hey, it was a great time or it was even worse than your, like at what kind of level are you on in terms of a wavelength with fellow players and, and, and opposition that played in your era? I think it goes both ways. And I think there's a, what I was shocked by how many people told me, wow, that happened to me, but it happened way worse. And that's mm -hmm. what people always ask me, like, or tell me that like, that was awful. What happened to you? And then I'm hearing these horrific stories of what happened to me. And then it went to a different level. So I think number one, that was relatable. And, and the people that say I, I loved hockey and nothing bad happened to me at the same time are saying we had no idea this was going on. So one of my best friends played for the Guelph Storm during this time. And uh, and the current uh, GM of the Storm was the coach then. And he he told me, he's like, none of this happened. Like we weren't allowed to do any of this. Everything was under control and we had strict curfews. And I can't believe other teams were doing these things. So right. uh, their experience was great, but they're shocked that, these awful things were going on. So even though their experience was fantastic, it's, it's interesting to see their faces when they learn how common of a thread these, these hazings and these other things that were going on happen. 
Right. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Um, and I guess I'll lead to that in kind of a follow-up on that in a moment. But you talk about teams with sound structure. And after you were in Kingston and the Sioux, uh, which may not have had the structure that they, they should have, uh, you went to play in Ottawa with Brian Kilray, uh, who was coaching at the time. And he's obviously a legend in the game. How did he rekindle your, your love for the game? I think he just made hockey hockey. So he, we weren't system based. Like you, he valued creativity and practices were, even though it was the same practice every day for, for the two years, we were on the ice for 45 minutes and it was like, go live your life after that. Um, uh, no curfew, but I trust you. And if you screw up, then you're either gone or something's going to happen to the team or we're going to skate. So right away, it wasn't this, I went home and I felt this huge pressure and that the coach hated me. It was, there's a relationship and he could yell at you. If people know killer that you can just, I can hear his voice echoing in the back of my mind. And uh, you thought he didn't like you when you left the ice. And then he'd come to you after the game and say, Hey, I saw your parents there today. Uh, here's 20 bucks for gas. Make sure you go for dinner with them. So it was just that level of caring. And, and to go on that too, I talk, when you talk about the hot box that happened to me in Kingston and all these, uh, it happened the year after and the year after because I heard from other players. Uh, the year after I left Ottawa, uh, a couple guys were put into the hot box as rookies. And uh, and uh, Killer came back when he found out and he let them out and said, get them out of the bathroom. And when he pulled into the rink in Ottawa, he made all the veteran players put their equipment on and made the rookies sit in the stands and he skated them for an hour and mm. basically said, this will never happen again. So when you talk about the difference in structure, right. The other coach knew that was going on and let it go on because it was just something that's happened for generations. But when Killer found out, stopped it, punished the veterans, and it never happened again. So that's the difference when we talk about culture. It's it's interesting, too, because I've read a few of uh, Don Cherry's books uh, with Al Strachan, and he also, uh, he's a friend of Brian Kilray and mentions how much he, the disdain he had for, for hazing. So the reason I bring that up is because there's there's blanket critiques of hockey right now, uh, and a lot of the tone of that is out with the old. Everything old is bad. Let's get rid of it. But when you explain what Brian Kilray just did, and you know, I bring up what I read about Don Cherry, uh, there it's far more nuanced than just saying out with the old, right? I mean, it's it's more than that. Well, and a lot of what they did was very progressive for their time. Like, like Brian Kilray, as old as he was, and Don Cherry, some of the things they did say have been used in hockey right and mm. and the way they wanted the game played and killer was a was a like a very very strong personality but he didn't want people to fight like mm. if someone put their goons on at the end of the game then killer would put his power play on and uh, i remember someone tried to shadow alan mccauley one game and uh so killer kept alan mccauley on for a nine minute shift and he said, I know he's in better shape than the other guy, so if that's how you want to play, then I'll keep my best player against your mm. less talented guy. So they were very progressive in their thinking, and, and you're right. When we talk about moving forward, everything, like there is some point of initiations where picking up pucks in front of 4,000 fans and carrying hockey bags into the rank or maybe a fourth-year guy asking you to get him a roll of tape, that this is part of almost like a – uh, coming into a new job, right? You're doing these things. Right. So just saying blanket statement, there's none of this stuff's going to happen. Like I'm not totally against it. What I'm saying is we don't need to hurt people. We don't need to get them naked and we don't need to uh, right. 
like shave their head and shave their body. There is a way we can still be a good teammate. That's putting it lightly. Yeah, I mean, uh, exactly. So um, go ahead, Nate. Yeah, and Justin, I just wanted to ask, because uh, you're around the OHL in its you know present form, how, how, what was it like with uh, in your playing days with the emphasis on education compared to how it is now? Yeah, I think if you wanted an education, you got an education. If you didn't, you just had to do enough to get through school. So um, it, it, it's interesting that, and, and it's a little better now, but there's no communication in anything. So when I had concussions and I got traded, that information wasn't passed along. And when I got traded uh, with the school and the high school stuff, there's no information passed school to school. So I got I got traded from... Uh, <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, yeah, there, there. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I got traded from uh, Kingston in the middle of math class. And within 24 hours, I'd played a game with my new team in the Sioux and was at a new high school the next morning. And they had no idea what classes I was in, what was going on. And it took about a week to figure things out. And then by the time you realize one of your classes doesn't transfer and one math class is halfway through the unit that you went through. It is really tough. And that led to me staying in school for an extra year and a half because of that. Well, I would like you now to, um, because it was one of the most interesting parts of the book to describe um, that educational debacle when you, when you get traded and just basically what you just described, you're, you're in math class and then you're playing a hockey game 400 kilometers or whatever away uh, later that day or the next day. So if you will, um, uh, Please uh, maybe read that passage we discussed uh, earlier. Perfect. Um, the OHL emphasizes their commitment to education, but some of their decisions make you wonder. We were allowed to, to take a maximum of three classes because practice started at 3 p.m. and a fourth class wasn't allowed. Then when you got traded, the courses didn't always match up between schools. Teachers weren't always teaching the same units and it was absolute chaos. You did everything you could just to get all of your credits. Marks became secondary to just graduating high school. In Kingston, I was put into a grade 12 English as a second language class because the regular class was full. There's three of us on the team in the same class along with students from Spain, Bosnia, Croatia, and the Philippines. The teacher realized early on that we were quote unquote special exceptions. So our job was to make a real great tea for the rest of the class, <laughs> serve everyone steep tea in Royal Dalton, China. One day our specific assignment was to take a stray cat that the teacher had found in her backyard to the local SPCA, and we received 100% on that unit. When it came time for the actual exam, we circled the adjectives, verbs, and pronouns and ended up with some pretty high marks. When the OHL season was over, it was the exact same process. We returned to our hometown in late March or early April and hoped that our homeschool would even allow us to register. All of the units were completely messed up, and I ended up missing huge chunks of the courses I took. The team didn't care about the chaos. They just wanted us out of their city as quickly as possible before anything stupid happened. The league is trying to change this as it's important in recruiting players away from the N from the NCAA. Wild. I mean, um, I mean, uh, Nate. I'm sure. I know. I went to 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 high school with uh, people that left early to go to other schools, and you'd see them at to play OHL hockey, and then also players would come and and I don't think we had too many at my high school, but players coming from out of town and playing for teams. And, and yeah, you just wonder how, how they, you know, you knew it was crazy, but when you put it into the, into that perspective, it, it is wild. And you see why there's such a drive towards the NCAA. And I, I want to know as a teacher, first of all, I, uh, what grade do you teach right now, Justin? I'm a high school teacher in Orangeville. So 
uh, I guess being in Orangeville, you wouldn't uh, probably have this situation happen to you. But I mean, have you ever been in a situation in your teaching career where you've seen a player come in uh, from from a team and 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 can, you know is that have, have you seen that? Yeah, we've had two or three players that played in the OHL that have come from uh, from Orangeville. And last year, we have a, a player currently playing for the Mississauga Steelheads that came back and. Mm. Uh, it was just interesting to see him all of a sh- sudden show up in class and after March break, right? So uh, <laughs> definitely cognizant to it, and you try and help the guys out and uh, and let people know what's actually going on. But uh, yeah, and I get it too from the OHL standpoint. Like when the season's over, you don't want 22, 16 to 20 year olds roaming your city with nothing, with no curfew and nothing to gain. But at the same right. time. Uh, the transition isn't easy. And the one year I couldn't even get back to my home high school. So I ended up going to six high schools in six years in the OHL and finally graduated after uh, a long career. What are they doing the, to, to, yeah. to change that now? Uh, definitely there's different, uh, there's educational consultants, which are a little stronger. I mean, with, with just email and the, the way we communicate now, it's easier to pass things on through transcripts. Mm. And uh, a lot of the stuff the guys are doing too is online. So instead of being in class, which I don't always recommend, I mean, it's a different education when you're online and in person, but what they're doing is making sure you have some online. So that way, when you go home, that it can carry over. So uh, that part's good. And there's only grade 12, right? A lot of the 19, 20 year olds are taking a a university course or two when they're uh, in their last year. So uh, that's a, that's a, a great new part of the OHL. By the way, our, our Kingstonness demands that we ask, which high school did the Frontenacs have you at when you were there? Do you remember? I believe we were at, uh, we were at Regiopolis, Notre Dame. Yeah. We finished that, and we started at another one that we switched over. And it, I, thought I, I thought I remember reading something about Bay Ridge in your, in your, uh, in your book. Uh, I think Wadding was the one that I went to in the Sioux. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's funny. When you go to six high school, there was yeah. a Waterdown. I went to EC Drury. And, uh, and in Ottawa, we were at an art school, which was all like you had to apply to for drama <laughs> and singing. And, wow. and you know what? It was the best school we ever went to, like where everyone got along. Because a lot of the time when you go to these new schools, I mean, if you're a grade 12 or 11 guy and all of a sudden these hockey players come in yeah. and you're trying to talk to girlfriends and all that doesn't go over well. But at this school, it was uh, it was fantastic. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Nate, were you jumping yeah. in or can I go ahead? No, no, go ahead, Neil. Um, so the, there, there's a quote, uh, from Jamie McLennan, which you, you know, you, the, the book starts with the question, like, I hate, I hate, I hated hockey. And I think I still might. And at the end, the last few pages, Jamie McLennan's quote is, is, is included. Hockey is 95% amazing, but the 5%, there are serious issues there and they have to be dealt with. So just going back a few minutes ago, how, how can sacrifice, dedication, toughness, and loyalty be maintained in the game in the best sense. And I, I, I say, let's go back to a few minutes ago, because I think you essentially answered this, but uh, how do we not throw the baby out with the bathwater in this time of change? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think you can have all those values and still be successful. So, I mean, I'm thinking of the NHL right now, and you think of the Chicago Blackhawks and the Kyle Beach situation. And in the quest of winning the Stanley Cup, they ignored a lot of abuses that were going on. And uh, the players, everyone that's played hockey knows the players know what's going on in the dressing room. But in, in that journey, a lot of stuff was ignored. Someone was abused. They let the abuser go and they ended up uh, sexually assaulting a high school uh, player later on. And then you look at the Boston Bruins this year with that Malcolm Miller situation where 
they signed a player that they probably shouldn't have. And the mm. veterans in the dressing room stood up and said, this is not right. This is not what we stand for. And with integrity said this, we need to stop this. So the Bruins ended up eating half a million dollars and releasing them. But with that, they showed character and, and people actually stood up in the dressing room. So I think you can have these things and, and you just can't turn a blind eye to things that are happening that shouldn't be. And, and to me, that takes a lot of, uh, a lot of toughness just to do that. So I, th I think that's where we're going with it. And you're right. Those are, those are great attributes and, uh, and great things that you can learn from the sport. Yeah. And Justin, I know when I was in Ottawa, I guess this is almost a, a decade ago now, but university of Ottawa, you know, they briefly suspended their men's hockey program. I think I want to say for one season, might've been two, but when they brought it back, they consult one of the consultants they engaged with someone who does like bystander intervention training. How, how valuable would that be for, for players to have just so they know, like, okay, I did, that just happened and that should not have happened. Yeah, and I think Calgary hired, um, I think it was a Hamilton guy too, uh, the tough guy. Um, Brian McGratton, yeah. Brian McGratton, and they just had him hanging around the dressing room and he'd been through substance abuse and he was a, a physical player and someone that you could look up to. And they had him in the dressing room that players could just talk to. And, and you're right, like, it, it, you just think what a value that would be for a million dollar, well, I think Ottawa is up for 750 million, just to pay someone a salary to have them around, right, for that advice, or whether it's a trained professional. Because, I mean, with university, like you said, you can teach the guys a lot of things and you can put rules into place, but when they go home at 6 o'clock, you're really just hoping that that your rules and kind of the integrity and your your morals kind of stand up to the kids. And this is the same with major junior kids, right? once they leave the rink, you're just fingers crossed that they follow the rules you put into place. So it's not always going to be perfect, but when you have people helping, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a huge asset. And of course I come back to what you said, Brian Kilroy is, you know, lived by, which was, you know, I, I'll treat everyone like men and, until you act like boys. And I yeah. did want to ask uh, since it's going to be coming up in a few weeks, the Memorial cup tournament, how, how like, uh, you know, just, you know, rarefied is that, is it to play in something like that, especially if you're a player on the host team, like you were with Ottawa back in 1999. I think as an overager, it's even more special because I mean, I'd been through hospital stays and I've been traded twice and you just have so many lows. So to know you're ending your career in such a huge event with uh, like a story tradition in Canada is, is fantastic. And your friends and family can be there. So yeah, it was it was just a, a great tournament and uh, and something that you'll never forget. And uh, the crowds were the crowds were crazy, and and just the atmosphere is fantastic. So uh, something I'll never forget for sure. Uh, Nate, just before you jump into the um, to the sorry, did you have one more Nate about no, you go, sports? Go for it, Neil. Go for uh, it. I had one more question for Nate. Kind of get ends this off on a more lighthearted uh, kind of uh, way of, of finishing up. But is there anything that you you know, in all the interviews you've done so far, and I'm sure that, you know, it's, it's a good number. Is there anything you, you, you wished was asked, you know, uh, that you kind of, anything, anything that you, you know, that wasn't asked about this, this project that you, that you wanted to answer or speak to? Yeah, I think the one thing that's come up more and more and Rick West, I was writing about it, is just, just the affordability of the game. So we talk about how we change things at the junior level and, all these different things, but we're, we're talking about team budgets being 150,000 and a 18 U budget. The GTHL right now is $270,000. So 
how do we make the game accessible for people or single parent families? And um, something I'd written, wish I'd written a little more about and something that we're, we're trying to set up here in Guelph, but hockey's a great game, but it's not affordable at this point. And just, there's so many talented players that come from low income uh, families or tough backgrounds. And when I was growing up, the players that I played with in Hamilton and the players that came from the GHL, they, they were tough guys and this wasn't affluent families and we're getting away from that to the richest people have the greatest success. So that's right. something that I hope that we can focus on and find a way that we can fund these, fund these programs where we can get more people playing because uh, as a, as a phys ed teacher, you just see more and more people gravitating to soccer and basketball and sports that they can get in easier uh, from a monetary st standpoint at the grassroots level. Yeah. I always wonder like, how do you, how, how do you sort of sell people on the idea that, you know, you don't need to travel an hour and a half to play better competition. Not, not right. when a, you know, your daughter or son is nine years old and they're just, you don't, and you don't know what they're going to like in two years. <laughs> right. But you're getting rewarded to like the GTHL draft here. My son had it last year. It was almost like 60% of the draft or even higher was like GTHL players. So you're telling people you don't have to do that yet. You're rewarding all these people. And mm. then you find out after the fact, Parents are paying fifteen to thirty thousand dollars to have their kid drafted to an OHL team, yeah. so that it looks good on their resume, so they can go to the U.S. Junior Hockey League. And you're like, okay, right. not only are you paying at minor hockey, now you're paying at the AAA level, and then now you're paying to get the OHL mark beside your name, so you can go to U.S. Junior, so you can maybe get a scholarship. So it's it's just crazy when you put it out there. It's funny oh. that you mentioned that because I remember we, you know, I did a I had a brief, you know, time calling games i think it was the uh, ontario provincial junior the, the ojhl yeah, yeah. And, and and there was i mean it was an outright known like there would be you know some goalie some third string goalie whose dad had bought the team like that bought the team specifically for the kid to to play on the team it was wild and then they'd sell the team right after it was crazy well, and that's rick's story that he put out yesterday was uh, this guy was trying to buy the double, yeah. the double A team franchise yeah. for three hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars, and you're like, if that's going for that, what are the, what are JRC or the Junior Canadians? What yeah. are they worth? And if if a triple A team's worth three four million, I think we've lost our minds. Right. Yeah. Of course, we had Rick as a guest in late 2020 for finding Murph, so we, we yeah. got to yeah. definitely yeah. shout that. Shout that out. That, we that. also, Nate, should shout out the Toronto Junior Canadians because Ryan O'Reilly uh, is uh, going to be playing tonight in Game 5. So just, just throwing go. that out. Go ahead, though, Nate. Yeah, I, I did want to ask, Justin, about your you know your university playing days uh, since I do vote in the U-Sport uh, men's hockey top 10 poll. Uh, what what are the selling points for people to actually, you know, get you know get involved in watching, you know, like OUA hockey, you know, because I'm tired of hearing it's the best-kept secret. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's funny that you said that, first of all, because I think there was a year we were 23-1 and one and we were ranked sixth in the country, so we always wondered who these voters were. So now I know who the people are. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't voting that then. <laughs> At Nate Sager on Twitter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and Nate Sager. Yeah, that's yeah it's, it's a tough one, right? Like when you go to the States and you go to the tailgates, you have generations of people tied to the school. And we have that a little bit with U Sports football. But with hockey, it's just, I think, getting people out to watch it and then – in Guelph, they have, uh, I forget what it's called, but there's a cup. The Frosty Mug, yeah. Frosty Mug, and they play Laurier. And it's funny, even the OHL guys that I work with, the Storm, they all make sure they go and it's sold out. And uh, and people have a great time. So 
I don't know how you do it at Western after I know they tried to have it at the, uh, where the Knights play and they tried to serve alcohol and make it kind of more of an event. But I mean, the year we won, we had I think 12 NHL draft picks and we had a couple guys come back from the East coast league. And, uh, we, we always, the all-star team usually, even though we're about seven years older, we play the world juniors tough. So you're right. It's, it's the best kept secret, but it's a matter of having that rink on campus, I think, and making it almost like a pre-party before people go out that they actually can recognize it's great hockey. Yeah, and I wondered if, you, if, if to this day, have you ever seen an uglier uniform than UQTR's orange and green? <laughs> you know what, though? The best part about that is my flashback is I remember their player in triple overtime having a breakaway and looking at that ugly jersey and he missed. <laughs> we scored about three minutes later and won. So it's not so bad when you beat them. Yeah, I think I think they've added some black in, but back in the day when Neil and I were calling uh, Queens games on the radio, I remember it was like Philadelphia, you know, for just give people a visual yeah. that, that they'll want to wash their eyes out after. Just imagine <laughs> a Philadelphia Flyers uniform, but lime green instead of a black and the same shade of orange. It was I almost reminded you, like they weren't the same colors, but like in the Detroit uh, Little Caesars uniforms when I was growing up too. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least that makes sense. Pizza's orange. That's right. <laughs> Uh, well, anyways, I, I think, you know, we, we really appreciate the time today, uh, uh, Justin. And, of course, the book, again, is uh, Conflicted Scars, an Average Player's Journey to the NHL. It's from ECW Press. And, of course, this was Season 7, Episode 2 of Sportslet, available wherever you receive your favorite podcast. So, Justin, thank you so much for today. Yeah, no problem. I, I loved it. It was great. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Justin.